love being here Sunday morning. It's exciting to get a chance to share with you. And uh, if you don't know me, my name's Gary, and uh, I just fill in from time to time. And uh, I just want to remind the, the uh, parents out there that uh, this part of our service is kind of aimed for an adult audience. It's not that we have anything overly shocking, uh, but we are working our way through uh, some Old Testament stories, and, and it's a wild one. It's, it's a wild week this week as far as uh, the life of David. So uh, keep that in mind. And, uh, you know, I just have to say, though, I, I, I feel a little... I feel a little off kilter here. It's, uh, we've always, uh, we're on stage this week, and we've always been kind of uh, speaking from a platform in the middle of the church, and being way back here, and everybody else uh, in, the, in the booth so far away, it feels, it feels a little weird. Uh, but then I realized that old saying that, you know, it's better to be a speaker in a vacant room than to be a vacant speaker in a full room. So uh, we'll see how we do. But uh, we've been working our way through a four-part series on David, and uh, I really, really determined that tonight... Uh, sorry, this morning, we're going to finish. And you know what they say, if at first you don't succeed, then you probably shouldn't try skydiving. I, I think that's the, the saying anyway. But uh, we're going to get finished today, and I uh, just want to take a moment to talk about David and how what we're doing is we're looking at the conflict in David's life. And we're looking at all those times where he came in conflict with people, and uh, whether it be Goliath or Saul or even himself, and just looking at that as a window into who he was. Because so often, when things are difficult... When you're in conflict, when you're finding things to be difficult, that's really when you kind of find out a lot about yourself and a lot about your relationship with the Lord. And so that's what we've been doing, and we're kind of uh, trying to answer this simple question. Why would God refer to David as a man after his own heart? When we've, as we've seen, David struggles, and David seems so flawed at times. And so we're going to try to answer that question. And we started this way back in March. We looked at the story of David versus Goliath, and that was the pinnacle moment for David. That was David's great moment. He's only 15 years old, but he chose to trust in God. He chose to put his hope in God. And, of course, he went out, and through a moment of bravery, he fought Goliath, and he won, and he gave God all the glory for that. And we learned later on in David's life, he would write about these times, and he went back, and he wrote this. He said, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust, and my hope is in you all day long. And that was certainly true on that day when he faced off against Goliath. And then back in May, we did, a, we did a section on David and his conflict with Saul. And we saw that Saul was persecuting David, and David hadn't done anything wrong. But at a certain point, David had to kind of run. He had to get away from Saul because Saul was trying to kill him. And so what we saw was he found himself in the situation of being alone, abandoned, and afraid. And because of that, he decided to take things into his own hands. He stopped looking to God as the author of, of what was going to happen next, and he started looking at himself. And we saw he took himself in this wild ride through the desert where he just made poor decision after poor decision, and he really kind of spiraled out of control for a little while until he came to the point where he found out that his poor decisions had hurt a lot of other people, had hurt a lot of people who he had no intention of hurting. And it was kind of a wake-up call for David, but we can kind of see that as maybe a low point for David. As great as his, and glorious as his uh, battle with Goliath was, this was equally as low and disappointing for David. And then so finally, last week, we started in on a section we're just calling David versus himself. And this is a look at David wanting to do things his own way, but knowing he wants to do things God's way. And so there was a struggle for him. And last week, we looked at the story of Abigail, Nabal, and David. And we saw that David, again, was about to leap into action and take things into his own hands. He was going to uh, go on a course of revenge and vengeance. He was going to kill Nabal and everybody who worked for Nabal. And then, of course, we saw the amazing intervention by the amazing Abigail, and she stepped in, and she reminded David of what God would want from him, how God saw him, 
and asked him what, is, what would he want his legacy to be, one of revenge and murder or one where he put the focus on God and did things God's way. And it worked because David thought about it for a second and he realized he was doing the wrong thing. He turned back and, uh, and he left from there. And so uh, we saw David there with a little bit of some learning in his case where he was able to change his mind and seek after what God wanted from him. And so this week, we're just going to finish that. We're going to finish looking at David and versus himself, if you will, by looking at three very short little stories. These are three stories I think I can do in four minutes or less. We're just going to kind of move through them quickly, but we're going to learn something about David and his ability to wait on God in each of these stories. And so story number one, we'll just jump right in. Story number one takes place when David is just 13 years old. Now, if you think of it this way, this is before the fame, before the glory, before he ever faced off against Goliath, before he ever had to stand up and uh, come into conflict with Saul. This is before his wild ride through the desert. This is before meeting Abigail and taking her wisdom and advice. And this is before, of course, he became king. Before all of that, we hear that Samuel was on his way to visit Jesse, who was David's dad. And, and somebody asked me this week, they said, why are we always talking about Samuel when we're doing the life story of David? Why isn't there a first and second David instead of first and second Samuel? And what we know is Samuel was God's prophet during this time. Samuel was who God used to speak to the nation of Israel. And so it's organized into the book of Samuel. So you'll notice today we're, we're reading about David, but it's in the book of Samuel. But this first story does start with Samuel. And Samuel, as you'll recall, um, had decided or had been part of the decision to make Saul king. And so Israel already had a king. His name was Saul, and he fit the bill. When you looked at Saul, you would believe he was a king. It actually says he was a foot taller than anybody else in the land. He was big, he was strong, he was a warrior. He fit the bill to be their king. But it's important to remember what we learned way back in March, that God had never wanted Israel to have a king. In fact, God had said, I want to be Israel's king. He said, we're going to do this differently. This country's going to be set apart because instead of a man as their king, they're going to have God, the God of all creation, as their king. And of course, the people of Israel said, nah, we'd rather have a regular king. We want a guy. We want somebody we can put on our money. We want somebody who can kind of come through the town during a parade. And we want somebody who stands on the balcony and gives us the royal wave. We want a regular king. And then Samuel said, guys, trust me, you don't want a king because of one reason taxes. But the people of Israel, they were like, no, taxes can't be that bad. It's not like they can tax everything. So we want a king. And Samuel was still very upset. So Samuel went to talk to God about this. And God said, if they want a king, give them a king. And Samuel was still really disturbed. And God said to him, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't want me to be their king any longer. What a heartbreaking thing to say. I know we, we talked about this in March, but what a heartbreaking thing to hear that the God of all creation felt rejected by his own people because they didn't want him to be their king. And so what we soon learned is that although Saul looked like a king on the outside, he was really not the king that they were looking for because it was all about Saul with Saul. And he was jealous and he got upset when other people received any sort of glory, including God. And so after disobeying God, God told Saul that his days were numbered. He said, you will not be king forever, he said. I will bring a new king in, in my own time. And so then God says to Samuel, listen, I want you to go anoint somebody to be the new king. And Samuel's a sharp guy. He says, listen, if I go out there and anoint a new king, our current king, the easily angered and ready to kill King Saul, 
He's going to kill me. And so it's, it's kind of a funny story the way Samuel and God kind of hatched this plan. He says, listen, here's what you do. You take a heifer with you, and you go to Bethlehem where Jesse lives. And you're going to have a ceremony and a celebration and a sacrifice there. And while you're there, you'll meet Jesse. And when you meet Jesse, meet his sons, and I will show you which son I want you to anoint to be the next king. And so off Samuel goes. And when he gets there, he meets Jesse, and he, and he says, I'd love to meet your sons. Bring your sons out. One of your sons is going to be anointed this day. And that was an exciting thing. It was being set apart for God's use. And so, uh, so Jesse immediately says, well, here's my eldest. And I don't know why back in the day it was so important, the order you were born in, because everything back in the Old Testament is about the firstborn. But I don't know about you, but I know this for a fact. Firstborns are bossy, and the youngest are always babies. It's the middle kids. The middle kids are what count. The middle kids are what it's all about. And it's just a coincidence that I happen to be a middle kid. But anyway, Jesse's thinking in the old way, and he says, here's Eliab. He's my son. He's my eldest. He's clearly royal material. And they look at Eliab, and it makes sense. He's a, he's a big, strapping kid. He's probably about 22, 23 at this point. And Samuel immediately looks at Eliab, and he says, that's a 10. I'll take him. Wrap him up. Put him on my donkey. He can be the next king. But then God says something to Samuel, and we can see it here in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. God says this to Samuel. Don't judge by his appearance or height, because that's what we did with Saul. Saul was the perfect-looking king. He says, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so immediately, uh, Samuel said, oh, you're, you're right, you're right. He's, a, he's an eight. Sorry, he's an eight. He's not a 10. Uh, we'll keep looking. We'll keep looking. And so, uh, as the story goes, Sam, uh, Jesse brings out his next son, the next eldest son. And again, uh, Samuel waits for God to tell him. God says, no, not this one. So he's like, no, no, this one's a seven. I don't want this one. And so, out comes the next son. And the next son, well, let me just tell you about the next son. No, I don't want the next son. And this goes on and on. And of course, they didn't use numbers. They didn't use a number system. But this is actually what happened. Clearly, they weren't too worried about these guys' self-esteem. Because as every one of these kids came out or one of these sons came out, he would simply say, God has not chosen you. And the next one, he said, nor you, nor you. And he goes through, and he goes through seven sons. I bet you didn't know that Jesse was Dutch. He's got kids coming out of the house to meet, to, to meet Samuel. And so as they keep coming out, finally, after the seventh son, Samuel's like, nope. And then he looks, and there's, there's no one else coming. And he says to Samuel, this can't be right. Don't you have any more sons? And Samuel says, well, I have one. He's like, he's like a kid. He's 13. He's out tending to the sheep. And Samuel says, we're not sitting down to dinner until I meet this kid. And so, of course, they bring David in, and they take one look at David, and he doesn't look like a king. But Samuel hears from God that he is going to be the next king. And so Samuel announced in front of David's brothers, who have all just been rejected and are sitting off to the side waiting, he says in front of them, David, you are going to be the next king of Israel. And he anointed him with oil. And we don't have time to get into what that means, but he had chosen David. And you see, David's 13 years old. This is two years before he would ever face off against Goliath. But he already knew. He already knew. Uh, God already knew his heart, and he already knew that God had special plans for him. And so from the age of 13 to 38, David knows that God will make him king, but he also knows he has to wait, because David knows that it's not about him, it's about him. And so David knew from that day that he would become king because it was God's will, but it had to be in God's way and in God's time. 
And so he waits and he waits and he waits. But here's the thing. It's, it's a lot easier to wait when you don't really have a choice. I mean, what's David going to do? Storm over to the palace, kick Saul out on his, on his rear end and say, I'm now your king? Of course not. He has no choice but to wait. But he takes that time and he learns. And he learns patience. And I think that can be true for us too, that during times when we actually have no option but to wait, we can be bitter about it or we can learn from it. But we're going to come back to that in a minute. Let's just jump right into story two. Story two is about 10 years later, and actually it takes place chronologically in the Bible immediately after last week's story about Nabal, David, and Abigail. And so it happens right after that. And now we see that Saul is chasing after David as usual. And Saul has selected 3,000 of his best troops because he's heard from a spy that David is hiding in the desert of Ziph. And so he takes his elite troops, 3,000 of them, and they're going to go find David, and they're going to go kill David. Saul has had enough of sharing the limelight with this kid. And so off he goes. And uh, on the way there, it's a long trip. On the way there, he has to make camp. And so he makes camp by the side of the road. And what he doesn't know is over the very next hill is David. And David realizes that he's there. And David decides, well, we need to go do a little bit of uh, covert ops here, a little Call of Duty stuff. We need to do some recon and sneak over there and see how many men he's got maybe see how many supplies he's brought so we know, is he going to be there for a couple days or is he prepared to be at chasing after us for months? And so that's all he needs to really do is go over the crest of the hill, take a look. Uh, but David, David is being David. And it's hard to kind of describe what I mean by that. But there's something about David, right? And I, I have a trouble kind of labeling it, except I think what my grandmother used to always say to me, she used to simply call me cheeky. And it's a, it's a British term, and, and I looked it up, I Googled it, and it really means to be a little bit sassy, a little bit mouthy, uh, but playfully so. And can I just take a moment to just let my wife know she's watching right now, and uh, if you happen to be on the computer, and you happen to be searching uh, my, my history, it's probably me, worth me mentioning that cheeky is also a type of bikini bottoms uh, for women. And so if you find it, it's okay, it's for church. But that's what he is, he's cheeky. He can't help himself. And so instead of just looking at the camp, he sneaks right into the camp. And he ends up sneaking all the way in and, and right to where Saul's sleeping, to Saul's tent. And Saul's tent is in the very middle of the camp. That's where you put the king in the safest place. You'd have to go through 3,000 men to get to Saul. So David sneaks in there, and he's got a friend with him. He brings Abishai with him, a volunteer. And as they sneak into that camp, they find themselves in his tent, and there's Saul sleeping on the ground. And he's got his spear stuck in the ground right next, to his, right next to where he's sleeping so that if there was to be an alarm, he could jump up and grab that spear. And on the other side of his head, he's got his water bottle because if you're going to battle in a desert, your spear and your water jug are the most important things that you have. And so as they sneak in there and as they find themselves right in front of Saul, they get into basically what I would call a whisper argument where they start arguing with each other, but they're whispering because Saul's right there and he's sleeping. And we can listen in on 1 Samuel 26 and verse 8. It says this. Now remember, they're whispering. So it's, God has surely handed over your enemy to you this time. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. And that to me is the weirdest Bible brag of them all. Now, Bible brag is one of those things where you read it in the Bible and you realize it doesn't make sense anywhere else, but here it kind of fits into the story. So here's what he's really saying. is He's saying, listen, if you let me, you see that guy sleeping over there? As long as he stays asleep, I can take him. I won't need to strike twice. As long as he's sleeping, I got this. 
And of course, what, what, really ha- what he's really saying, it reminds me of that old joke. You know that old joke? Uh, you know, if you get in a fight, there's going to be two hits, me hitting you, you hitting the floor. You've heard that one. Well, it's kind of the same idea as that. But then David responds, and David says this, no, I'll stop whispering, but remember they're whispering. Don't kill him, for who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he will die of old age or in battle. But the Lord forbid that I should kill the one that he has anointed. Now, it's important to remember that David is being chased all over by Saul, and it's not David's fault. But David is still unwilling to take matters into his own hands because he says God made Saul king, and it's really up to God to remove Saul as king. And so just to finish the story, instead of killing him, David grabs the spear and grabs the water jug, and they sneak back out. And as they're just about to go over the hill and leave Saul in their tracks and and head back towards their camp, David can't help it because David's cheeky. And he turns around and he calls into the camp. He yells and wakes up the entire camp. And here's what he says. It's, 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 It's worth listening to. Here's what he says. He says, well, Abner, you're a great man. I should explain. Abner was the chief bodyguard for Saul. He says, well, Abner, you're a great man, aren't you? Where, is all, where in all Israel is anyone as mighty? So why haven't you guarded your master, the king, when someone came to kill him? This isn't good at all. I swear by the Lord that you and your men deserve to die because you failed to protect your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around. Where's the king's spear? It's in David's hand. Where's the king's jug of water? It's in his other hand. That were left beside his head. And so the David and Abishai then, they run off. They leave the spear and water jug, and they run off. I'm guessing they were giggling as they ran away. But that's the end of story two. Story three is another good one. Story three, we have to jump ahead another eight years. This is not like all happening all in a row. This is David's life for so much of his life. And we find out that Saul and actually a couple of his sons, including Jonathan, had died in battle. And actually it says that Saul fell on his own sword because he was wounded and he was about to be captured and he didn't want to be humiliated as a captured king by the Philistines and can only imagine what they would do to him. So he actually fell on his own sword. And it's amazing to hear how David mourns for Saul and Jonathan, the people who are trying to kill him, the people who had turned their backs on him. David mourns and he mourns, uh, mourns longer than anyone else. And here's where a little of the politics comes in. You see, what would happen now is each of the 12 tribes of Israel, so almost think of it as provinces in Canada, each of those 12 tribes get to say who they want to be king. The elders would decide. It wasn't a democracy like the people chose, but the elders for each of those tribes would choose who they wanted next. And so Judah right away, Judah is where David's from. Judah right away says, well, it's got to be David. I mean, who else could it be? David who defeated Goliath, David who has been respectful to the King Saul and never laid a hand on it, how could it not be David? But unfortunately, the other 11 tribes, they said, well, that's not how this king thing works. We wanted a king, and the way you choose your next king is by simply taking the eldest son of the former king. And of course, the eldest remaining son, some of his sons had died in battle, but the eldest remaining son of Saul was someone named Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth was made king by the other 11 tribes. And so David technically, David's 30 at this point. Technically, he's king, but he's king of one small tribe. The rest of Israel is under Ishbosheth's control. And for eight more years, David lives in this situation where he refuses 
to forcefully take the crown. He refuses to engage in a war against Ishbosheth. He basically tries to steer clear. There's a few skirmishes, but he refuses to take the advantage. He refuses to press the advantage. And so we get to the point where we hear that two of Ishbosheth's men, two of his own men, decided that they wanted to be on Team David. And so at night, they snuck into Ishbosheth's sleeping room, his chambers, and they killed him. And they cut off his head, which sounds overly barbaric, but this is how you prove that you'd killed someone. You couldn't take a picture on your iPhone. You couldn't wait for it to be on the news the next day. And so they cut off his head. And then they ran back to David, and they were excited. They were, they were really excited that they had done this. They couldn't wait to show David what they did. And we can pick up the story here in 2 Samuel 4, verse 8. It says this, When they arrived at Hebron, they presented Ishbosheth's head to David. Look, they exclaimed to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of your enemy Saul, who tried to kill you. Today the Lord has given you, the king, revenge on Saul and his entire family. Now here's what's, here's what's important to realize. As David is hearing this news, these two brothers are excited. They think they've done it. They think they've managed to figure this out. And so here he is. He's holding the head up to show David. And they're probably fist bumping each other or high-fiving or whatever they did back then to show they were excited. And they're like, look, look what we did. You can now take over. You can be king of all Israel. Ishbosheth is dead. And then I think slowly that smile came off their face. And slowly maybe that, that head kind of went behind their backs as they realized they'd made a terrible mistake because David took one look at them and he said, the punishment for murder is death. And these two brothers were put to death because they had murdered Ishbosheth, even when it was given to David through no uh, action of his own. He refused to take advantage of the situation because he said, I will become king in God's way and in God's time. And not once did David say, listen, God has promised it, so I'm just going to take it. And in doing so, he, just, he really showed us a simple truth, a simple truth that we need to keep in mind and something that we learned all the way back in March, that David was, although David was a king, God was the true king of Israel. And Saul was a king, Ishbosheth was a king, David was a king, but only God was the true king. And it reminds us that David knew that he would become king. He had been anointed. He knew he would become king if it was God's will and if it was in God's way and if it was in God's time. We know there was another man who lived about a thousand years later, another man who was greater than David, another man who had also been anointed king, but it was another man who had yet to receive the crown. It was another man who could have been recognized as king if he had forced the issue, but he chose to wait. And there's another man who believed that it has to be God's will in God's way and in God's time. And of course, that other man was named Jesus. You see, Jesus was not God's puppet on a string. And we have to remember that, that Jesus had the choice to do things his own way or do things his father's way. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we're told this in John 13, 3, it says, Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and he would return to God. David had the power to make himself king, but he did not have the crown. And Jesus had the power and the authority from God, but he did not yet wear the crown. We need to not understand this to, un to truly realize what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. So right before Jesus had been arrested, 
We read this in Matthew 26, starting in verse 38, it says this. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And he said to his disciples, stay here and keep watch with me. And then he went a little further and bowed down to his face to the ground praying. And he said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Because here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I don't want to be kissed on the cheek by Judas. I don't want to be arrested. I don't want to be deserted by all my friends and see them run when trouble comes. I don't want to be spit on. I don't want to be slapped and punched in the face by the very people who claim to represent my father. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to hear the crowd cheer for Barabbas and then hear that same crowd scream for me to be crucified. I don't want to feel their whips tear into my back. I don't want to wear that crown of thorns. I don't want to be hit in the head with a staff over and over again. I don't want to carry my cross up that hill. I don't want to be hung on that cross to die. But if we finish that verse from Matthew, after he said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, he finished by saying this, but I want your will to be done, not mine. You see, Jesus wasn't arrested because he was powerless to stop it. Jesus was arrested because he valued your life and he valued my life more than his own. You know, Jesus didn't carry his cross because he had no other choice. Jesus carried his cross because every step he took brought him closer to you and closer to me. And Jesus didn't, wasn't crucified because it was the easy way. Jesus was crucified because he was the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that he was our king, but it was, had to be done in God's will, and it had to be done in God's way, and it had to be done in God's time. Let's just pray. Lord, so thank you for an opportunity to share your word, but just more overwhelmed by what you did for us. To, to really comprehend what it means that the Lord of all creation, the God of the universe, would send his son, and that son, being God himself, would choose to die. Choose to die in such a horrible way as to pay the penalty, to pay the price for what I've done in my life. How can we not be overwhelmed by that thought? But how can we not be thankful? And how can we not take time to remember that? And we're going to do that this morning. Just thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for what you did and what you continue to do in my life. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.